Well, imagine getting to be a fly on a wall to one of the famous influencers of our day. Maybe someone like Joanna Gaines, you know, the cute fixer-upper home design lady. Or maybe someone known for cooking, like Rachel Ray. Or uh, someone known for financial planning, getting out of debt, Dave Ramsey. So pick your influencer of choice, whoever you are a little curious about. And you are there in their home as a fly. What is it that you would hope to see? If you like this person, you are probably hoping to see that they are who they say that they are, right? That they are not depicting themselves in one way on the media, but in real life, that's not at all who they are. You want to see that they are who they say they are. You also might be wanting to get some tips from them, because if they are who they say they are and they live according to their own advice, you're wanting to know how do they do it. Like, if they talk about home organization, what systems do they actually implement? Or Mr. Ramsey, what does he spend money on? And does he use any envelopes when he does it? Or if they talk about food and eating healthy, you're thinking, okay, but what do they snack on at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Let's say I pick Joanna Gaines. If I'm going to her house, what I am thinking I'm going to see is a home that is just always Instagram-worthy. I'm kind of even thinking that her hidden messes are like bright and airy and cute. And maybe that's not fair, but maybe what I would want to see is... It's when she's not talking to like all of America, is she so happy? Is she really that cute? Is she really always trying to be content and to keep things simple? And I'm sure a lot of you love her and you're like, yes, yeah, absolutely, she would be that way. I have no idea if she would be that way. But isn't it so refreshing when someone is who they say that they are, when they actually live by their own advice? And it makes what they say and what they do that much more worth learning from. And we have been learning from the Apostle John all year long. We've been hearing from him in 1 John and 2 John, and we're hearing all what he has been about, that he is about truth, and he is about fellowship, and he's about love and an obedient living and right doctrine on all of these things. But now we get to 3 John. And it's a little like we get to be a fly on his wall. And I say that because this is a personal letter from the Apostle John to a man named Gaius. And so in that sense, we get to see a little more of a behind-the-scenes picture of John. Get to see him a little more close up. Maybe even see, does he live by the advice that he has given? You know, John in real life. And not surprisingly, he does live according to all the different truths that he has taught. And it is so refreshing to see that he does live as he would expect others to. It reminds us that he is an example worth following. He is the kind of influencer, if you will, that we should want to learn from. And we will see that as we work through this text. So let's study these introductory words in 3 John. So if you're not there, please turn there with me. We're going to look at 3 John, the first few verses, verses 1 through 4. And you'll see that it starts as most letters do, where it says who it's from at the beginning, and then it says who the letter's to, and then there's these other introductory remarks. So let's read it. 3 John, verse 1 says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, 
whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So we know right away from reading it that this is from the elder who's known as the Apostle John. It's to Gaius, and this is a personal letter. But being that this is the beginning of a new book, let's take a few more steps back and think about the context. You might remember that it is thought that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John all came together as a packet at one time. And 1st John was written to be read like a sermon given to a network of house churches. And then 2nd John serves kind of as a cover letter. And then we have 3rd John, which is a letter of recommendation. It's a letter written by John to Gaius, to recommend the carrier of the letter, Demetrius. And John's saying this because Demetrius is coming with this packet of letters, and of course, he wants him to be received well as he has this packet, but also probably so that Gaius would host him. Gaius is known as being a hospitable man, and Demetrius needs a place to stay, and so John is saying, this guy, Demetrius, you know, thumbs up to him, listen to him, he's got the letters, and maybe host him. He's a good guy. Um, And what we know about Gaius from this letter, he is a faithful man. He has been doing the things that John would want him to do. He's seemingly a well-respected member of the church, maybe a leader of the church. And as I said, he's known for being hospitable. And so probably he's a well-off guy to have a reputation such as that. And really, hospitality is one of the key themes in this book also. Uh, Second John, you might remember, is really when not to be hospitable, when we should not welcome someone, when they're not with us, when they're not with the right doctrine. Third John is the flip side, when we should welcome people in, when we should be hospitable. And so this letter also serves as an encouragement to Gaius. John knows that Gaius has been doing that. He has been being hospitable, and he wants him to continue to, continue doing that, And uh, especially, he's mentioning that, because at that time, there were some who were causing trouble that were not wanting hospitality, excuse me, to be what was going on. There were those who didn't want to welcome the, the missionaries, the Christian missionaries who were coming in. And so John is encouraging Gaius in that. And we'll learn all about that in the coming weeks. But let's, just, let's dig into our passage this week, starting with verse 1, and see what we can learn from John right off the bat. So verse 1 says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He calls him beloved, a dearly loved one. And then he says that again in verse 2, and he actually says it two more times in this short letter. Then he says, Whom I love in truth. In other words, He's saying, I love you as a fellow Christian, as a brother in Christ. Just as John taught all over and over and over again in 1 John about the kind of love that we should have, that there is this special love that brothers and sisters in Christ should have for each other. There's this special fellowship, this bond. It's a mark of real Christianity. And so we have 
the apostle that we all know as the apostle of love, showing love. And he not only shows it in this first verse where we see it in his words, but really it's practically displayed even in this text. Verse two, I mean, we see it in the way that he is praying for his friend, that he really cares about him. And we see it as we get down to verse three and four, that he has this emotion that's really wrapped up in how Gaius is doing. He really deeply cares about Gaius and how he's doing. And all around, he's just showing it in his encouragement that he loves him. I mean, needless to say, John practiced what he preached. And that's one of the first, most foundational, but extremely important things that we can learn from the Apostle John. We, too, need to practice what we preach. That's point number one. Practice what you preach. John showed that in his life. It should characterize every Christian's life. We want it to characterize our life as well. And of course, this phrase doesn't necessarily mean literally that we are preaching. It could mean that, but it just means when you say something is right, when you say that this is what we should be doing, that you yourself are doing it. And it's good to think in this specific area, right? We're thinking of John and how he taught about love and how he showed love, and we could think through that because I imagine we have all preached at times about the importance of love. We have said Christians need to show love, right? We need, to, we need to show it better on social media, and we need to show it better in our neighborhood, and we need to show it better in our families and better to our husbands. I mean, probably in your group, you've had discussion time where you have all said, yeah, we need to love each other better. And so you have preached it. But have you really lived it out? When that opportunity came where you know you need to show love, but it was just a bit inconvenient. You just go, ah, oh, oh well. Maybe next time. Maybe next time I'll show love. If we're going to claim it's important, we've got to do it. And so think, this year you've thought about love so much. Where are you still resisting? Resisting the obedience to love. Like John said in 1 John 3:18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We can't just give lip service to it. We really need to work to show it. And beyond that, beyond love, we're called to so many things as Christians. So many things that we will proudly proclaim that this is what Christians should do. I mean, think of the encouragement that you give every week. You talk to people and you talk about these truths. Maybe it's someone you're discipling. Maybe it's in your group time. Maybe it's with your friends, with your family, with your kids, with your grandkids. You talk about things that you know that Christians should do. And then you have to think, but do I really do them? I mean, so often we, we pass around truths like, you know, God works out all things according to his plan. He's working it out for good. And we'll say that to people who are going through something. But then how often in our own hearts we still have that anxiety. We're still not trusting God like we should, or we're still not content with the life that he's given us. Or I think, you know, we talk about, uh, we know we need to train and discipline our kids. But then when it gets to our own, we get kind of lazy and soft about it. Or we talk about Bible, like we really need to get in our Bible. It's so good to be in God's word. We need to have a quiet time every day. We should read our Bible and we should pray. We say that to people. We encourage them in that but then in our own schedule, 
do we really make it a priority? Is it one of those things that we're like, oh, you know, I didn't get to it again, or I'm just going to rush through it today. I'll get to it a little bit more tomorrow. Or we say we should be joyful, and then we think if someone was a fly on our wall, would they see that we are truly joyful? Or we say that we should be more gracious, that Christians should be the most gracious people, and then within the same hour, we are hypercritical or we're not giving people the benefit of the doubt. And I could go on and on. It reminds me of what I noticed this week with my van. I, of course, live the minivan life. I love the minivan life. It's great. There's so many conveniences. There's the doors that open this way with the touch of a button. There's the cup holders. You can pack kids in there. It's family-friendly. It's great. What I don't love about the minivan is the way sometimes it's kept. And I try not to let it bug me, but every once in a while, it drives me crazy. And so the other day, I, for some reason, got a sneak peek at the back seat. And I was like, are you serious? There is not only trash and backpacks, but there was like a pile of laundry in the back seat. And I was like, okay, what do I do? I have free hands. Should I take some things in? Or do I need to get them all and get them out here and clean it all up? Well, good thing I had free hands. Because then I went in the front seat, my seat. And I saw, oh, I guess I leave some stuff in the car too. I guess... You know, though I don't have a pile of laundry, I still don't really practice what I preach. And really, that's just quite silly. But more than that, it's hypocritical. And the car, you know, is it really that big of a deal? I should probably either start practicing what I preach, or I should stop preaching and be okay with a messy car. Either way. But when it comes to biblical things, both are important. We can't stop practicing and we can't stop preaching because it is important that we encourage each other to do the right thing. But both of them need to go together. Jesus made this clear in Matthew chapter 23. I would love if you turn there with me. Matthew chapter 23. And Jesus was teaching and he was getting all over the religious people of his day for this very issue of whether or not they were actually practicing what they preach. And we can proclaim the right stuff, but it comes down to whether we are really living it out ourselves. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 4 reads, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, meaning they teach the law. Verse 3. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We would hate for that to be us in even the smallest of ways, where we think we encourage people, we talk about these truths, but what if Jesus' commentary on our life, if he were to say to those women, yeah, yeah, do the things that she tells you to do, but don't do the things that she does, for she preaches, but she doesn't practice. 
Rather, we want to be like John, where if a snapshot was taken of our life, it would be obvious that we are consistent. And when we say something, we live by it. And of course, there's going to be some inconsistencies in our life. That's bound to happen. There's going to be things where we know what the truth is, but we might not even know that we don't live by it. We say things to our kids or to our grandkids or to other people, and we don't know that we are doing the very things that we're telling them not to do. So it's good to be mindful of this, to just be aware that this could be in our life, and then to ask God, God, show me. Show me where I don't live up to the standard that I set. I know the standard is up here, and I want to live by it, but show me where I'm not and I don't even realize it. Not so I can change the standard, but so that I can rise up to meet it, to live like you want me to, to please you in my life. We want to be women who practice what we preach. And we thank God for examples like John to remind us of that. John also gave us another example to follow. It's another way that he showed love to Gaius. And we see that in the text. If you'll turn there with me again. We're going to read verse 2 again, and we see it in this prayer that John has for Gaius. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So again, he calls him Beloved, and he says that he prays that all would go well with him. Literally, that means he's praying for a good journey, but it's not necessarily always referred to as a journey. It came to mean just praying that someone would have success, saying, praying that someone would prosper in what it is they're doing, that they would just be doing well. And he says that he prays that he would be in good health as it goes well with his soul. So praying that his physical well-being would match how his spiritual life is. And we know his spiritual life is good. We see that as we got to verse three and four, he's doing well. And so John is praying that his physical well-being, his health would match how he's doing. And we don't know if Gaius was sick, if that is why John is praying this. It seems more likely that John just cares about his friend and he wants him to be doing well. Much like if you were to write a letter and you were to say, hey friend, I hope you're doing well. Or more specifically, hey friend, I hear things are going really well for you spiritually and I am praying for you. I'm praying that all the other things in your life would be going well too and I'm praying for your health. I pray that you would be doing well. And we don't know how God answered this prayer. We don't know if Gaius ended up getting really sick uh, if he started dealing with a lot of health problems. We don't know if he had suffering or if he had persecution. Uh, and that might seem obvious, but it is important to note that this is a prayer from John to Gaius for his health and even his success. Both are they're great things to pray for. It is you know, really great to pray for someone's health. But this is a prayer, not a promise for all New Testament Christians. And I say that because this verse has been twisted on numerous occasions to actually be referring to the fact that this is a promise, that this is what God wants for you. And there's this connection made that in the same way we're doing spiritually, as it goes well with our soul, so it should go well with our life, that we should prosper, that it should go well in prosperity, in our wealth, in our health, in our success, in all kinds of ways. 
otherwise known as the health wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. Speaking specifically of someone who misused this verse, I don't know how much you know about Oral Roberts. He was a famous preacher. He died about a decade ago. Uh, he was a key figure in getting the prosperity gospel up and running, especially on TV. So to the masses, he was preaching, and he became known especially for this concept of seed faith, meaning that if you give to him, if you give to his ministry financially, it's like a seed that God will multiply miraculously for your benefit, for your prosperity, for whatever it is that you want in money, success, health, whatever it is that you want. If you give to his ministry, God will do that for you. And he reached millions in his decades of ministry. He paved the way for all kinds of prosperity preachers to follow after him and to reach tons of people. And what is so maddening is it all started when he supposedly accidentally stumbled across 3 John verse 2. He opened his Bible, he read this verse, he thought he knew what it meant, he got excited about it, and his ministry started from there. I read this excellent article by John MacArthur about the impact of Oral Roberts, and there was these two very troubling sentences. He said, in many places today, including some of the world's most illiterate and poverty-stricken regions, Oral Roberts' seed faith concept is actually better known than the doctrine of justification by faith. The message of prosperity is now the message multitudes think of when they hear the word gospel. It's just heartbreaking. And all because he took this verse and he twisted it. And we can't think that that kind of bad theology doesn't creep in among us too. In small ways, it is all around us. Where we start to think that our lives should be easy. They should be free from suffering and we should have a lot of the world's good stuff in our lives. Maybe even because we're doing spiritually well. You know, we're following God, we have faith, and that should match by the way our life is trouble-free or by the way our life is successful or by the good things that are in, in our life. And if we have some kind of suffering or problems or persecution or whatever it is, we think, well, maybe, maybe it's something's wrong with my faith. Maybe something is wrong with my spiritual life. But we've got to take that kind of wrong thinking and we've got to compare it to Scripture. I mean, think of the whole, the whole context of Scripture, First of all, that we live in a sin-laden world. Our world has sin, and that's messed up things all around us. And that means we are going to deal with things like sickness and death and suffering and sadness and pain and all those things. And we're told that we are going to have trials and that it's used for our good, that God uses it to sharpen our character. And we're told that we will be persecuted if we live a godly life. And we're told that the Christian life is not easy. We're told before we even get in this thing that we're supposed to count the cost, that we're supposed to be willing to deny ourselves, that we're not supposed to be storing up treasures here in this life, we're supposed to be storing them up in the next, that we're supposed to be taking up our cross. And none of that aligns with the prosperity gospel. Not to say that health and wealth are bad, they're certainly not. In fact, there's gonna be plenty of that in eternity. But we're not promised that here 
and now, and certainly not in 3 John verse 2. So that's an excursus on what 3 John 2 is not saying. But back to what it is saying. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So basically, John is thinking of his friends whom he loves. He cares about him, and he wants him to be doing well. He prays for him. He prays for his well-being. And something we can clearly do too, and probably something we should all do better, is we should be praying for our friends. Point number two, pray for your friends. And I am sure we all try to pray for our friends. I mean, how many times a week do we say, I will pray for you? Okay, yes, I, yeah, I will pray for that. I'll pray for that for you. But good intentions about prayer don't automatically translate into good prayers. We have to actually take the time to pray. And John's prayer as a biblical example is so helpful because it is so simple. Oftentimes, I think we think our prayer needs to look like the Apostle Paul as he, he prays for the church in Ephesus or as he prays for the church in Colossae. Those prayers might come to mind. But here we have the Apostle John's prayer, and he's just praying a very basic prayer. He has some spiritual things in it, and then he has some temporal kind of things in it. You know, some things re- very much related to eternity, and then some things that don't necessarily relate to eternity but are really important. And both are great things to pray for. Of course, we should be praying for our friends' spiritual life, praying that they grow in the Lord, that they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that God uses them, that he makes them effective, that he causes them to live without regret, makes them more obedient. But we're physical people too. We're real physical people that have real practical problems, and those are good things to pray for also. In fact, I was, I was sick last week. It was like a, a medium cold. It wasn't one of those minor colds. It wasn't one of those, you know, think you're going to die colds. It was like medium misery. And I laid there in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, just laying there restless, and it was like a light bulb went on. Ah, this is why John prays for Gaius' health. It's really important to have good health. And it really stinks to not have good health. And if you wake up after a night of barely sleeping, it's really hard to get up and to do all kinds of things that we should be doing. It's hard to fulfill our responsibilities. It's hard to be a godly and patient wife and mom. Uh, Being exhausted affects a lot of life. And then I think of the fact that I had these different things on my calendar that were important to do. I had different ministry things and I had to cancel those things because I didn't want to get people sick. But really, sickness just stinks. It's not how we were meant to live. And so it makes sense that though that is not directly eternal in nature, that John would pray for Gaius' health. But even then, it's kind of intermingled with our spiritual life because we are physical people, and as we pray for these things, it affects us spiritually. Ultimately, what it comes down to is it makes sense to pray about anything. It makes sense to pray about everything. I mean, we think of the principle we know in our own life. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anything that would be a concern, anything that we might be anxious about, we should be praying about for ourselves. And of course, that means it would make sense to pray that for our friends. Anything that would be a concern in their life, we should be praying for. And really, it's, it's just a great way to love our friends, to put other people's needs above our own, as Philippians 2.4 says, or to carry each other's burdens, as Galatians 6.2 tells us to do. And I'm sure we want to do that. We want to pray for our friends. But we think, I guess I just need more minutes praying. You know, I'm just trying to master my daily focused prayer time. And once I get that, then yes, I have got to start praying for my friends more. And I think we're going to be working on that daily time where we focus and pray the rest of our lives. But we should, still should be applying this. And think maybe as the Apostle John was writing this, you could just kind of picture him writing this. Maybe he was even praying as he wrote it similar to the way that we could be texting each other and saying, this is what I'm praying for you. And we are praying for them as we encourage them in those things. Or maybe John wrote it in that praying without ceasing kind of way, you know, in those conversational prayers where as you go through your life, you're praying for someone. I really love the praying without ceasing, like concentrated times where you have an activity that you're doing, where you're having a conversation with God and you could be talking to him about your friends, you know, as you are driving somewhere or as you're taking a walk or as you're doing your laundry. My favorite is the walking around the neighborhood. You're knocking out all these birds with one stone. You got, got the baby in the stroller, got the dog on a leash, getting my exercise and thinking of my friends and just thinking about their needs and what they have going on. Even today, the things that are going on today, how can I be praying for them? And it'd be good if we had those times where maybe there's even a specific kind of time so we know what's going to happen, where every time I do this, I pray for my friends. Maybe you have a friend pray and drive. Every time you go to this location, you are praying for your friends or a daily friend pray and walk, whatever it is. We should be praying more for each other. I mean, even thinking as you leave women's Bible study, that would be a great time. As you leave every week, pray for the friends in your group. I mean, I hope you count them as friends and I hope you pray for them. We should be praying for each other. We should be praying for the people we disciple, for our ministry partners, for our family, for our friends. Basically, anyone who is anything like a Gaius to us, we should be praying for each other. Let's love each other well in that way by praying more, praying for spiritual things, everyday things, whatever it is. And what's so neat and really sweet about this kind of thing is as we love our friends and that causes us to pray for our friends, it actually ends up causing us to love our friends even more. And it really gets us to care very deeply about how they are doing. And that's really what we see, in a sense, with John. As the passage goes on, we see he deeply cares about how Gaius is doing. Let's look back at the text. We see his emotions stirred about the report of Gaius. <clears throat> Let's read the text again. Third John, verses 3 and 4 says, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
So some Christians had gone from where Gaius was to John, and they gave a good report about him. They said that he was being faithful, that he was walking in the truth, and John was overjoyed. It was like he counted as one of the greatest blessings in his life to know that this man that he invested in was bearing fruit. And this wasn't a one-time event because we see it says, no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Children being plural. So John's invested in a lot of people. And some he probably saw come to faith directly in his ministry. Some that he discipled along the way. But either way, whenever he heard that they were bearing fruit, it brought him tremendous joy. And yet, I'm sure along the way, he also dealt with plenty of heartache, plenty of dis- disappointment. Um, we studied that in 1 John 2.19, right? When they went out from us because they weren't even really with us. People that he thought were with him, that he thought he was discipling, were not actually of the faith. Disappointment, heartache. Or in 2 John, where there's people coming in and trying to have an influence for bad theology amongst the people that he's reaching out to. So yes, grief, disappointment, heartache for sure. But when people were tracking, when people proved to be disciples, when they were bearing fruit, it made it all worth it. And discipleship is hard. And there is not spiritual fruit around every corner. But when there is, we should take it from the Apostle John that it will bring tremendous joy. And of all the things worth doing in our life, we've got to see disciple-making as not only extremely important, but worth every ounce of effort. And I can't think of any better way to say it than that we should get pumped to make disciples. That's point number three. Get pumped to make disciples. When we get to be a part, even a small part, of what God is doing in people's life to cause them to walk in the truth, it's hard for anything else to compare to that. And while our ministry might look different than the Apostle John's, we don't have apostolic authority. Really, it all comes down to the same basic job that we all have. The Great Commission, go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19. And all of us as Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5, 20 says. So we share the gospel, we invest in people, we point them to Christ, we disciple them, we help them grow up in the faith, we come alongside them, and that's all wrapped up in that disciple-making ambassadorship. And when God allows us to see the fruit of our labor, see people walking in the faith, there is no greater joy. But we might hear that phrase and think, how is that possible? No greater joy in that. Is Christ not our greatest joy? And of course he is. But the joy of people following Christ isn't separate from that. It's really interwoven into it. For example, uh, this might seem trite, but just for the sake of illustrating, think of your favorite activity, your favorite hobby. Maybe think back to when you had time for a hobby, maybe back in high school or something. Whatever it was, maybe it was swimming, maybe it was some kind of sport, maybe it was cooking or scrapbooking or whatever it is. And let's say you were all about this thing. You spent so much time with this. You learned all the tricks of the trade. 
you just, you loved it. You were passionate about it. And let's say you even got to go big. You got to compete in this thing. <laughs> compete in scrap scrapbooking competitions. I don't know if that exists. But whatever this thing is, you poured your life into it. Now let's say you got to invest in a few gals. And you got to teach them everything you knew about this thing. And you saw them grow in it. And you saw them come to love it. And you got to see them even compete in it. In the same way, let's just say it's running, okay? You got to run, you got to race, and so now your girls are racing. In the same way, you would say, there's nothing better than racing. You could say, there is nothing better than watching my girls race. Because they're not different. The joy of watching your girls race is interwoven in your love for racing. In fact, watching them race probably makes you love racing even more. It's not like you would say, there's nothing better than watching my girls sew or swim, because that's not your passion. That's not your love. That's not what you're all about. And of course, it's different, but I hope you can see how it's the same. When you have love for Christ, when your joy is in him, and then you get to share that with somebody else, and you get to see them grow up in that, where they have joy in Christ, where they love Christ so much. It just makes you love Christ more. It's like those joys go together. They're not separate. The joy of others' obedience is an offshoot or one aspect of your joy in Christ. There's a passage that you looked at at your last study but I want you to look at one more time with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you'll turn there, that would be great. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The context is Paul is writing and Silvanus is with him. That's this traveling ministry partner that he had. And Timothy is there as well. And Timothy had actually come back and given them a good report about how the Thessalonians are doing. That they are walking in the faith in a sense. And so Paul says... In verse 8, so 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, he says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And there's another huge statement. Now we live. I mean, wouldn't you think we live because of Christ? That's why we live, because we have Christ in our life but interwoven in their desire to live for Christ is their desire to see other people live for Christ. In fact, they can't thank God enough for them. There is so much joy in them when they think of the Thessalonians' faithfulness. And I mentioned the context. Silvanus was there, Timothy was there, and Paul was there. And I mentioned that because this is not just an apostle's joy or even the pastor of a specific church. These guys had all invested in the Thessalonians at different times, and all of them together, they think of these people that they've invested in, and they are, have so much joy just knowing that they're bearing fruit. It's like they're ecstatic about it. And it is a joy that we can have too. And when we focus on that, our evangelism, our discipling, our ministry, it becomes a get-to instead of a have-to. And I admit that there are times when I have had that have-to 
mentality. I mean, I think of my walk around the neighborhood, and there's times where I'm looking around at the different houses, I'm thinking of some faces I know, some faces I, I don't know, and there's this sense of obligation. I have got to share the gospel with these people. And of course, it is a responsibility. But what I need to tell myself in those moments is God could use you. God could save one of these people. And you could watch God transform them before your eyes. And God could end up using them to impact so many more people. And yeah, I, I might run across as I'm trying to share the gospel, I might run across some grief. Some people might not like what I have to say. I might be rejected. I might have some persecution. But if it's just one, if just one person receives it well and I get to see them bear fruit, what joy I would have. It would be all worth it. We need to get excited by the possibility that we will one day see people bearing fruit because God used our efforts. And we need to let, us, let that motivate us to take the next step, whatever that is, to ask God to show us where are the opportunities that are right in front of me that I am missing. Ask God to motivate us to speak up, to say something, to start that conversation that we've not been wanting to start. Motivate us to spend the time with people that it takes to go deeper. Motivate us to find that new Christian and come alongside her and help her grow up in the faith. And really even just let it motivate us to take serious this series that Pastor Mike is starting called Gospel Advance. And just picture yourself like the Apostle John. Picture yourself extra aged as he is as he's writing this book. And he's thinking back on his life. As we think back on our life, is it not going to be that we are going to look back and think of the impact we had for Christ? And that's what's going to be so important to us, to be able to pinpoint people like Gaius in our life, to be able to think, yeah, that was like a Gaius to me. I was able to invest in her life, and I was able to see her get saved. I shared the gospel with her, and it's like I saw her eyes open right before me. And I was able to be there when that girl was going through that and I was able to help her grow through that. It really comes down to how we plan to invest our life, our time, our energy. And there is a lot pulling for our attention, a lot of things that we should pay attention to. But there's very few things that are especially worthy of our focus, where the payoff is great. There's a parallel principle in finances, right? We know where you, you invest in certain things where the payoff is great. My husband has always been really good with investing and saving, and so he started something with my daughters. You know, they have these different bank accounts, and whenever they get money, they have the choice where they want to put it. And so he tells them that if they put their money in the savings account, you know, the account where it cannot be touched, whatever they put in, he will double it. And so he's trying to teach them to invest wisely, you know, rather than to spend frivolously. Well, of course, there's these different personalities in our home. And so there are some who are like, oh, saving, that's such a great idea, but I really want to buy this thing over here. Or some are like, yeah, yeah, saving, okay, yeah, I'll get to that later. 
but there's this one who can see the joy ahead of her when she thinks about the possibility of getting the car of her choosing. So instead of buying small now, buying that small little trinket, that small thing that will just make her happy for a little bit, she looks ahead to see what kind of payoff will really be worth it. And of course, that is the mindset that we need to have because it is hard work in all kinds of ways. Disciple-making takes sacrifice, but the payoff is worth it. Again, if, if we just get to impact one person, but perhaps God will allow us to impact five or 15 or 30, or maybe in our lifetime we'll be able to look back and see he allowed us to impact 50 people. Oh, the joy that we'll have as we think about those people not to mention the impact we will have for eternity. Well, I mentioned influencers earlier on, and I went on a quest to find out if any of the influencers are really who they say that they are. And not to say that none of them were, but what did flood my Google search was these memes and these articles and these pictures that hilariously showed that the influencers of our day are not who they say that they are. You know, there'll be this picture of this beautiful person, and then you'll see the unedited version right next to it. Or there'll be this gorgeous picture, and then you'll see the hideous picture that was taken right before it. And we come to see how massively edited the lives of our influencers are. And that's what makes the example of the Apostle John so refreshing. He is who he says he is. He lives according to the truths that he's taught. Makes example, his example truly worth following. And in one sense, what we learn from him is so basic and yet so important. I mean, practicing what we preach, that's just living a more obedient life just living to please the Lord. Praying for our friends, loving them practically, that's just obeying the second greatest commandment. And making disciples, that's just obeying the great commission. Three basic but fundamentally crucial endeavors for us as Christians. Let's learn from John to live more faithfully, more prayerfully, more lovingly, and to pour ourselves out for the gospel. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We thank you for the way that these books came together for us to see what John was all about, love and truth and fellowship and all these things, and then to see that he lived them out, specifically in the category of love, loving one another, and we know that's so important to you. It's a mark of real Christianity, and it, it, the second greatest commandment, Lord. I pray that we would remember that love is important. We need to practice what we preach, and in all kinds of ways, God, we want to be real. We want to be the real deal, who we say that we are, that we really live according to the truths that we talk about on a daily basis. And God, I pray that we would love each other better through prayer, that you would remind us to pray for each other, 
And God, I pray that we truly would be disciple makers, that we would not go about our lives being busy in so many types of ways, really good ways even, but that we would skip out on the privilege and the joy that we can have when we pour ourselves out for the gospel, which we can do in all kinds of ways, sharing the gospel, investing in people, coming alongside people. God, I pray that we would be true disciple makers and that we get excited about that. Motivate us in that. Allow us to see the fruit of our efforts, maybe even in the next month, so that we can build new habits where we really do make a concentrated effort at this task. In Jesus' name, amen.